This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Lerner Foundation and listeners like you. Anne here with a quick request for you before we start the show. Gabe, my producer, and I are always trying to come up with ways to improve Safe Space Radio. And one thing that would really help us do that is to hear from you about what's working for you about the show and what you'd like us to try. If you could take a minute to answer a short five-question survey after you've heard this show on Refugee Women in Maine, we would be so grateful. You can find it by visiting safespaceradio.com and clicking on the button that says Survey. It won't take long, and it'll help us keep pushing the show in new and exciting directions. Thank you in advance for your response, and thanks for listening. This is WMPG. I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. Today, we continue our series on refugee women in Maine, looking at how gender impacts the experience of displacement and resettlement. My guest is Catherine Besteman, professor of anthropology at Colby since 1994. Her research focuses on racism, immigration, mobility, inequality, and social transformation, topics she studied in South Africa, Somalia, and the U.S. Her newest book, Making Refuge, Somali-Bantu Refugees and Lewiston, Maine, is due out in January 2016 and was supported by the Guggenheim and Rockefeller Foundations. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Catherine. Thank you. Glad to be here. So I understand you first went to Somalia in the late 1980s. That's and right. Tell me about that trip and what inspired you to go there. Well, I'm an anthropologist, and um, as you may know, uh, anthropologists, a lot of what anthropologists do is predicated upon extensive fieldwork. And so anthropologists immerse themselves in a context about which they wish to learn more. It's a slow research process. It's a fully immersive research project. Um, it takes a long period of time. So as a graduate student in the late 1980s, I was very interested in Africa and had an opportunity to go uh, participate in a project that was being carried out in Somalia as part of a research team to investigate a very particular question regarding the privatization of land and the attempt to convert Somalia into more of a capitalist economy. So my job as a, as a dissertator, as a person on the verge of writing dissertator, a dissertator, I never heard that it was the first time before. I'd ever heard it, now I use it every opportunity I have, <laughs> um, was to go to Somalia and study what the conversion to land privatization meant for small-scale um, subsistence farmers in an agricultural area of southern Somalia. So if I did this research, um, then I could also piggyback on it research of questions related to, to my own interests. So um, when the offer came to me, I didn't know much about Somalia, although I had long studied Africa. I'd spent quite a bit of time in Africa, had never been to Somalia. I went off to the library. I found like four books or three books on Somalia. I mean, there was very, very, very little written in anthropology about Somalia. And to somebody just about to embark on their career, it, was, it just seemed so exciting. Um, what I read totally fascinated me. And I was quite eager to go. Uh, so that was the motivation. It was to be in my dissertation field research. I was to be there for a little bit over a year. I was to live in a in a small um, village of of uh, you know small scale peasant subsistence farmers in order to study this particular aspect of Somalia's economy. And you mentioned that you went sort of as part of this larger project, but you wanted to really look at the specific questions that were of interest to you. And what were those right. questions? Right. So I I um, had initially I, I I was very interested in the ways 
in which human beings access resources in their environment in order to build a sustainable life. So that had been my interest in graduate school. It was what I developed my expertise in. So I was well equipped to do that kind of a project. But when I got to Somalia, the part of the country um, in which I lived, the southern part of the country, it's called the Juba River Valley, I quickly learned was inhabited by people who are considered minorities within Somali society. Not something I'd really read much about in the literature. And Living in, in their villages and witnessing the sorts of daily indignities and, um, and inequalities to which they were subject made me much more interested in their own history, in the history of the Juba Valley, in how these people came to be living in the Juba Valley, what their particular histories were, why the sorts of inequalities um, existed that were so apparent to me in Somali society, what the government had to do with it. And what foreign aid coming into the country had to do with sustaining and enabling inequalities that allowed minorities to be treated as um, sort of outside the mainstream of Somali society. And are you specifically talking about a group of people called the Bantu people? Well, they weren't called the Somali Bantu when I lived there. There were different names for them, some of which are quite denigrating names. But there was no overarching sort of unified ethnic name for them at that time in the late 1980s. The term Somali Bantu emerged in the refugee camps to try to come up with a way to label people who um, had been particularly uh, victimized during the war and who were uh, enduring ongoing discrimination in the refugee camps. So these were people who Um, when I lived in Somalia, did not necessarily see themselves as belonging to a similar ethnic group or sharing a common identity. Uh, That happened when they came together in the refugee camps and began to realize the sort of systematic forms of abuse to which people who shared this ancestral status of denigrated minorities uh, had experienced throughout throughout the war. And can you help me get a a more concrete sense of that? What kind of inequalities or denigration are you talking about? So I'm talking about things like um, who can marry whom. That's often the way societies um, mark difference is uh, with marriage patterns, who you are allowed to marry and who are you, you are barred from marrying. And so um, for these minority groups, um, they are barred. It doesn't mean it never happens, but this, this common social understanding is there's not to be intermarriage between Uh, ethnic minority groups and um, other Somalis. So that's one way of of maintaining these sorts of distinctions in an enduring way. They were subject to, um, or they experienced verbal abuse. They were, uh, some of them had ancestors who were brought to Somalia as slaves, not all of them, but some of them, which means that they were viewed as not having a true Somali ancestry. And so this is obviously a mark of exclusion. And um, and are they visually recognizable or distinguishable? Well, you know, the claims are they are. And so they're, um, the term race is used. I've used it myself to describe the ways in which they are distinguished. Um, but like with, you know, race is a social construct. So we see what we imagine that we are seeing. And so or what I think, we're taught to see. What we're taught to see. Um, so I think that uh, there are some, you know, sort of... R- roughly caricaturable physical distinctions, but it's a it's a continuum. Like with anything, you can't always tell who somebody is by looking at them. Um, but it was more had to do with lifestyle. And so 
um, people who were farmers tended to be um, minorities, uh, and people who um, were pastoralists or livestock herders tended not to be. And oh, really? So there's sort of like a class system between yeah. pastoralists and farmers. That's right. Oh. Mm-hmm. I have to say I was so intrigued by you talking about marriage laws and how they reinforce inequality. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about the recent passage of marriage equality here, how marriage laws are used as an instrument of oppression. I haven't quite... Always. 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 Um, the, the, the policing of who can be married to whom, who is allowed to have children with whom in a socially recognized way is always used as a mark of, of exclusion, distinction, inequality, hierarchy. Whose marriages can be recognized and who is excluded from that? You know, you think about what marriage is. It's it's a legal it's a legal bond recognized by the state, um, reflects social norms, and uh, right R- reflects what society approves of and mm-hmm. kind of condones mm-hmm. and what it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what I'm sensing is you went to Africa with this um, idea about what helps people create a sustainable life, mm-hmm. and what you encountered was something that maybe you hadn't really expected fully, which was the degree of social inequality among ethnic groups within Somalia. Absolutely, yeah. And so that was sort of this surprise right. to you. Mm-hmm. And um, has that changed the the direction of your subsequent academic work? Well, absolutely. I mean, everything, uh, anthropology is, is very flexible, and uh, you, you can imagine what you're going to study, and then you go off to do your field work, and of course nothing is as you thought it would be, and, and so anthropology is, is about, it's a lot about living in the moment and, and really trying to see the way things are as opposed to the way you imagine they would be, and trying to tell true stories, you know. So, so I got to Somalia, began to sort of come to an understanding of um, social realities on the ground, the ways in which people's lives were organized, how people made the best of things, how they made sustainable lives. And the war was happening in the north when I was there. Siad Bari, the former dictator, the deposed dictator, was bombing the north of the country. Um, So there was a lot of talk in the south about what the future would hold, are things going to fall apart, can we run away to Kenya? We all had sort of escape plans to Kenya, which um, ended up being exactly what people ended up having to use. But um, I think the total collapse of the state and the the devolution of Somalia into civil war was not necessarily what people expected would happen within two short years. Uh, So when I came back to the United States, which was in 1989, I began writing my dissertation by 1990, um, it was clear the government was going to fall. The government fell in January of 1991. And um, almost immediately thereafter, the entire country descended into civil war. All of that was not what I anticipated would happen. I was supposed to go back to Somalia in 1990. I was supposed to go back in 1991. Um, and so my research very much became about trying to understand what caused um, the eruption of violence throughout the country what caused the particular patterning of violence that subjected some communities and some groups within Somalia to higher rates of violence than others? What were the patterns that left some people more vulnerable than others? Um, how did people get out? What happened to them once they got out? Uh, and that that has been what has interested me since 1991. So before we, we talk about what life for Somalis is like here in Maine, I want to go back and understand a little bit better the forces that made it imperative for people to leave, mm-hmm. so many people to leave, especially because you were there right before it all kind of fell apart. 
what is your understanding of what led to the, the collapse of the government in Somalia and the civil war that that made living conditions so unbearable? That's such an important question because I think often people do not understand what goes into somebody's decision to flee their country. I mean, that's a monumental, monumental choice because when people are fleeing their country for their life, they have no idea what's ahead of them. They only know that if they stay, they will die. And that's, you know, to, to, to not having ever been faced with that kind of a choice makes it difficult for people to understand the enormity of what it means to abandon your land, your home, um, perhaps some of your relatives, to leave behind people who have died and flee with your children toward, toward an uncertain future. So what happened in Somalia is there was a dictator named Siad Bari, came to power in, in a coup. Um, initially, it was supported by the Soviet Union during the Cold War, and then he switched sides in the late 1970s, became a, a client of the United States. And as his leadership and authority became increasingly totalitarian, authoritarian, and brutal, he received increasing funds from um, the United States and uh, European allies to support his government. And over the course of the 1980s, between 1980 and 1989, he received about a billion dollars in in foreign aid, much of which was military aid and some of which, which was economic aid. And he used that aid to hold on to power in the face of um, calls for democratic reforms. He used that aid to build the biggest army in Africa. He used that aid to acquire a great deal of uh, military equipment. And he used that aid to bomb um, communities in the north who were who were rising up against his his government. Um, he threw people in jail. His regime engaged in torture, and he had really devolved from being um, somebody who had some very good ideas about social reforms. I think in the seventies to somebody who was really little more than an authoritarian dictator in the eighties. So as people began rising up against his authoritarian government. Um, he continued to receive foreign support until 1989 when um, the Berlin Wall came down. And at the conclusion of the Cold War, um, in the U.S. Congress, uh, congressmen and senators began you know, saying, this guy is a dictator, we shouldn't be supporting him any longer. Um, they voted to cut aid to his government in 1990, January 1991. His government collapses because the only thing that kept it afloat was aid coming from the West. So when his government collapsed, the country was awash in weaponry, um, had been highly militarized, had been subjected, people throughout the country, especially in the North, had been subjected to very high levels of violence, um, a great deal of brutality. His regime had um, engaged in divide and rule practices that had pitted different communities, different kin groups against each other. And the legacy of that, of course, is the civil war, control for power, the assumption being that whoever regained power could then regain um, what was perceived as a great deal of support from the outside world. So um, so everybody bears a lot of responsibility for the collapse of the, of the Somali state, and I think that's really, really important to recognize when one's own government intervenes in another country in a way that causes massive distress and dislocation that there's going to be fallout, there is going to be blowback, and we have to continue to take responsibility for the actions of our own government. So um, as civil war began spreading um, from the north-south and then from Mogadishu, which is in the south center of the country, out into the countryside, 
um, various militias formed, um, highly militarized, fighting against each other for control of the state. And there were a lot of civilians. You know, the thing about civil war is civilians are the ones who get targeted. So throughout the country, civilians became subject to attack based on where they lived, who their families were, um, or uh, who their alliances were perceived to be. And there were lots and lots of civilian deaths. People who had money could get out by getting on planes or getting on boats or paying trucks. People who didn't have money had to flee on foot. And so in the area of the country where I had been living in the Juba Valley, people didn't have a lot of money. And as the war came down to the Juba Valley and militias began fighting for control of the Juba Valley, which was perceived as um, potentially very lucrative because of the river water and because of the agricultural resources, the people who had been living there the ethnic minorities who had been farmers there were unarmed and they had no allies amongst the militias who were vying for control. They got targeted repeatedly. Um, Human Rights Watch and other organizations uh, described what happened in the Juba Valley as genocide. Uh, Militias repeatedly entered villages and um, killed men, abducted women. Sexual violence was rampant. Um, People were forced to watch family members be killed in front of their eyes. It It was really quite horrific, um, absolutely tragic consequences for people in the valley. And so uh, bit by bit, over the course of about a year, people began fleeing, um, sometimes in small groups, sometimes 100 people would flee at night, the village that I lived in. Um, There were several mass exoduses of people agreeing secretly at night to flee when militia members weren't on guard and um, take what they could carry and and get out. And it caused them to have to walk for several weeks across the desert to get to the Kenyan border. Lots of people died en route to the border. Um, once they crossed the Kenyan border, they you know were either trucked or they themselves walked to the massive refugee camps that were forming in Kenya, where many of them lived for a decade or a decade and a half before finding some resolution to um, living in limbo. It's a profound story you tell. I mean, really trying to picture, you know, you leave or you die in very, very concrete ways because you're seeing it happen. Absolutely. It's not a theoretical possibility. Absolutely. You know, for me as a clinician, realizing that essentially everybody who's come here is suffering from a great deal of trauma. Everybody who has come here is suffering from a great deal of trauma. And... You know, I can't help but wonder what we as a society are doing to help with that, to mm-hmm. acknowledge it, mm-hmm. to recognize it, and to work with it. And um, and also, you know, how much receptivity there is culturally to mental health services. Because mm-hmm. I'm imagining the sense I've gotten so far is that the concept of mental health treatment is not a well-established one in Somalia. And so that there's also, you know, some internal stigma from receiving that kind of help here. Is that your sense? Not not so perhaps baldly put. I think that um, mental health is, a, is, again, it's a social construct, right? So different societies have different cultural understandings of what constitutes mental health. And so... I'm not an expert in psychological anthropology. I'm not an expert in psychology. But I would say for Somalis, mental health is associated with community support. It's associated with um, family sustainability. It's associated with being able to live a viable life. And so 
people who have suffered traumas and tragedies depend on family members and broader society to enable them to to you know live healthy lives. That's that's a really really important component of I think in any society, but in Somali society as well, for managing experiences that are anybody would recognize as deeply traumatic. And so for people who have come through a civil war, who have been who've experienced profound traumas of various and numerous kinds, rebuilding those support structures, allowing support structures to uh, not only grow but flourish is critically important. And that means not only family members, but also not having to worry constantly about, are you going to be able to pay your rent? You know, how are you going to get food after your food stamps run out halfway through the month? Is your kid going to be okay in school? Is the society in which you're living invested in you as a human being, invested in your success, invested in your support, invested in your health? Those are really important dimensions of mental health that I think we often overlook. And so oftentimes people will say, you know, I don't, I don't need treatment. What I need is I need to feel that my kids are safe and they're going to do okay here. I don't need treatment. What I really need is I need a good job that, that is one that, I, that it gives me dignity. That's what's going to make me feel better. You know, I, I, I have two thoughts listening to you. One is sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I mean, if you don't have fundamental safety and shelter and food, uh, you know, not being haunted by your nightmares becomes secondary to those fundamental things. But the other one is I, I'm thinking of a guest on the show from many years ago, a man named Matthew Sanford, who said that trauma is always experienced in community and must be healed in community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think about so much of what the mental health system has to learn from mm-hmm, what you're saying mm-hmm. about the importance of community in healing and um, ways that we have a very individualistic model. Of Absolutely. Healing. And I think, you know, I, I've heard Somali friends um, uh, make remarks like, well, how does talk help you. Right. You know, we're very based on talk therapy. Right. We're based on individualized talk therapy. Um, there's, I think, uh, some consternation that say you have a family, you have one family member who um, is suffering to such an extent that um, it comes, that maybe it's a child and maybe school authorities intervene and that child begins to receive counseling. Family members will say, well, the whole family needs assistance, not just the one child. How? What good is it going to do him if his parents are also suffering, if his siblings are also suffering, and he is the only one receiving individualized treatment? It just doesn't make sense as a model of mental health that you would isolate an individual and provide specialized counseling based on talk therapy to one individual as opposed to the broader social unit. I think some of my friends find that a befuddling way to go about offering right. And of assistance. course, there is an enormous family systems therapy movement. Right, right. But yes, I mean, it, it's these are such deeply cultural questions in a way, you know, how much American society is so focused on the individual, on the individual and, yeah. and the costs of that at, mm-hmm. at every level. Um, it's very poignant for me to hear about the degree of a kind of denigration and inequality among ethnic groups in Africa. I think sometimes there can be this kind of idealization of, you know, people from Africa don't really encounter racism until they come here mm. um, and, and, you know, into this dominant white majority culture. And there can this can be this idea that, you know, we're the bad guys who mm-hmm. specialize in racism sort mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. And 
there's something very humbling to see how human this capacity is for division and ethnic tension, you know, everywhere, and the marginalization of groups by difference. Um, in some ways, it actually humanizes people even more hmm. to acknowledge that we're all capable of that, uh, even as, as tragic as that is. And I would also want to say that we're all capable of fighting against it, you know, and I think it's, I think it's really important to point out that Somalis aren't all racist, you know, that, that um, this is not a, di- just as, as white Americans aren't all denigrating and racist and exclusionary and xenophobic. And so um, these are perhaps some of the worst, you know, whether we want to use the word impulses or actions or attitudes of humanity, but that doesn't mean even the majority of people subscribe to them. All you need is a minority to make it real, to make it felt, to make it meaningful. Um, but uh, I, I wouldn't say that these are attitudes that are human universals without also saying that the converse, um, the, the desire to, towards um, sociality and mutuality, the desire towards finding commonality, I think is, is just as present and just as important. So I just want Thank to Thank you so much for that. saying that, Catherine. So I'm thinking about, you know, now... Uh, so many Somalis have relocated to Maine mm-hmm. by way of Kenya, just as you said. And how have the ethnic differences that you first encountered in Somalia, how do they survive here now in Maine? Do they have power and and relevance for people? I mean, are they an ongoing divisive force? Well, I think, you know, things, things have evolved in the decade, um, decade and a half, that, um, that Somalis and Somali Bantus have moved to Maine. So Lewiston is a case in point. There are um, Somali immigrants there and Somali Bantu immigrants there. And with the rise of various community associations that are engaged in a wide range of av- advocacy projects and social services projects, um, I think that there has evolved um, quite a bit of collaboration and a commonality of interests. And children, of course, these are irrelevant distinctions for children. And that, that has got to be the way of the future. These, these differences simply can't retain their salience in a different context moving forward. And I think people recognize that. So as you know, this series is particularly focused on the experience of women mm-hmm. as refugees. And, um, you know, I love what you said about how for children these distinctions are irrelevant. And so I'm thinking about their mothers, and mm-hmm. I'm thinking about whether this kind of unifying bonds of children and children's friendships, which is so often how women mm-hmm. become friends with each other as they meet the parents of their kids' friends. Do you feel like the irrelevance of ethnic distinctions among children translates into women's friendships across ethnic differences? Well, I think that making a life in the United States, making a life in Lewiston, making a life in displacement... Um, is also important for forging bonds among women, taking care of each other, um, working together. Uh, you know, women uh, end up working next to each other in, in hotels or um, on farms. There are a number of community farms where uh, a lot of women work as farmers in Maine. Wonderful projects that support um, women's ability to feed their families, grow fresh vegetables, contribute to their to their. Um, household uh, nutrition in that manner. Women share food, women share cooking. 
Um, and the kinds of rituals that anchor life in Somali communities, like um, births and deaths and marriages and engagements. You know, these are really, really important social activities where women play an important role in um, supporting other women who have just given birth or have lost somebody or who are themselves getting married or whose children are getting married. Women cook all the food for the feasts. Weddings are... Um, really important social, elaborate social occasions uh, to which any community member usually is invited and that means that women work together to provide food for everybody and so uh, women also have rotating credit associations they have funerary associations where they pool resources with each other and so i think that in addition to children perhaps it's even truer to point to the kind of enduring um institutions of social solidarity, uh, mutuality, mutual support that women engage in that are so, so, so important to making a life here. That was part one of my conversation with Catherine Besteman, professor of anthropology at Colby College. I'll be talking more with her next week about the refugee community in Maine, and particularly about the problem of xenophobia and what we can do to combat it. A quick reminder to please take a moment now to go to safespaceradio.com and click on survey to give us your feedback about this show. If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com where you can listen to all of our past shows including the earlier series we did a few years ago on Somali immigrants in Maine. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim